Hey, Stefan. Hi, Tim. Since the news these days is all about various billionaires taking joy rides into outer space, we're on the podcast today to talk about the nuclear weapons and space sci-fi shows such as Battlestar Galactica and The Expanse. I just hope that Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson aren't graduating to the next level of Bond villain and starting a rich person nuclear arms race, too. Oh, Tim, I'm supposed to tell you that you're way too critical about f- these rich uh, and their uh, attempts at going into space, really. <laughs> you are not too critical of them. I have to, to ruin your cold open there, but um, no, hate it. And yes, they are definitely on the level of Bond villains, uh, what, what they are uh, going into with their with their space stuff. Nope, not too critical. Not too critical. I'll allow it. Thank you. Finally, someone says I'm not being super critical. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and often nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living, and I'm excited to be joined today in the virtual podcast studio over Zoom by Stefan Sase, who is Stefan Sase on Twitter and the founder of the blog Nerdstream Era a history teacher, and the host of the very excellent podcast, Boiled Leather Audio Hour, about A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. That's how I've I've gotten into your orbit and really excited that you're here today. Thanks very much for welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, It's a lot of fun to be here already, and I hope this will be a great hour. So I'm really glad you're here in particular because I have you to thank for bringing this new joy into my life, which is the wonderful, terrific book series and TV show called The Expanse. I've already liked shows like Battlestar Galactica that show things like humanity trying to survive in space against long, difficult challenges, both alien and, you know, human infighting. So The Expanse was just what I needed in my life. Plus, I learned later that the series included a great amount of nuclear weapon plot content, so you can understand why this really ticked off all my entertainment choice boxes. Uh, For people who aren't familiar with these shows or need a quick refresher, Battlestar Galactica, we're going to talk about what they call the Reimagined series, not the one from, what was it, the 60s or the 70s? Hard to watch. Uh, End of 70s, start of 80s. People who enjoyed it, I'm sure enjoy it a lot, Um, but the Reimagined series, the one that started on the Sci-Fi channel... Uh, 2004 to 2009. That's the one we're talking about today, as well as The Expanse, which has been a show first on Sci-Fi Channel, later on Amazon uh, since 2015, and I think a new season starting in December. And then there was been a book series since 2011, I believe, and the final one's coming out in a few weeks here at the end of November. Are you excited for this? Very much so. Yeah, this will be this will be a great read. What's, what has been your experience in, in with both stories? Kind of where did you first come across them? And uh, what kind of impact before we delve into them? Kind of what have they had on your your pop culture life? My start into Battlestar Galactica was uh, a very normal one because I started with a board game. Oh, really? <laughs> so, you had a board game first? Yeah. Uh, I, I did the board game first. I'm, uh, I'm a board game player. And in 2008, uh, I saw this board game, Battlestar Galactica, uh, in the on the shelf uh, of my local store, and I didn't know much about Battlestar Galactica other than it exists and it's something about robots in space. <laughs> uh, 
uh, but the designer uh, of the board game, Corey Konieska, uh, I knew him uh, from other games, not only, uh, but I knew other games of his, and I thought he was a very good board game designer. And so trusting blindly uh, that he would do good work, uh, I bought the Battlestar Galactica board game. I played it. I liked it a lot, and it is very thematic, and it has a lot of screenshots from the show and quotes and all of that. And I was like, okay, I need to see the show. Uh, I watched the show, bought all the DVDs, uh, then I watched them again, then I watched them a third time, and then I watched them a fourth time with audio commentary. This is the only time <laughs> I ever watched anything with the audio commentary on it. I did all four seasons because wow. back then I was still a student and had time. Um, but so uh, Battlestar Galactica is a series I have seen a lot. And the last time, uh, this fourth time uh, that I watched it is like 2010, I think. So I did it also in a very uh, short period of time. But since then, I haven't rewatched it. Uh, so you you should bear that in mind. My perspective is uh, through nostalgia tinged glasses when it comes to Battlefield. I've played the board game only recently, uh, and I still have good memories. I listen to the soundtrack on occasion, and I have a gigantic aster of the 12 colon of COBOL uh, here <laughs> on my wall, uh, a star chart. And I saw that very bad pilot episode for the luckily never made Blood and Chrome series. So there's that. And the expanse, uh, I think uh, the I came to that in a very usual way this time without irony because <laughs> I heard that these guys who were friends with George R. R. Martin wrote this, um, and that George R. R. Martin is basically a fan and that it is very good. You know, you hear the usual Game of Thrones. Uh, and while I can't hear the Game of Thrones in X uh, line anymore, if these guys are personal friends, I'm inclined to believe it. Uh, and so I did watch the TV series. I, I started with the TV series. The first two seasons were out uh, at that time. I watched them and I liked them. And then I picked up the books and I read them and I liked them also. Uh, and since then, I'm a, a mild fan uh, of The Expanse. I think it's good. I'm not a super fan or anything. Mm -hmm. I haven't reread the books. Uh, I haven't rewatched the show. Uh, but I'm excited for every new season and I'm excited enough for every new book. Uh, so that is where I stand in regards to these two series. Well, you got to be at least a, a decent fan of it, because if you're going to read all like, upcoming eight books of a of a series, um, at least it's good enough to keep you interested. Is it nine? Whoa, geez. Uh, that is correct, right? So. Uh, well, a lot more than I normally read in terms of uh, book series, but probably, you know, in terms of total pages, maybe three George R. R. Martin books. And critics really like both of these shows, too. I, I think the Battlestar Galactica's ending you know, ticks people off. Um, probably fits well that I am a fan of both the ending of Battlestar Galactica, Lost, and Game of Thrones. Um, people definitely don't enjoy talking to me about these kinds of shows, uh, so I appreciate you being on here for this. But uh, critics overall, I think on Laurent Tomatoes at least, uh, however much you trust that, um, 95% on both shows, right around 94, 95. It's good content to talk about, and with the two main questions that we'll all be looking at when we are discussing these shows in the book series in case of the Expands, one, do nuclear weapons make good weapons for space-based combat? Because that's always a fun thing people ask me about. And two, do they make good plot devices in space-based stories? Which I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective on. Before we delve any further, spoiler warning as usual, if you haven't seen these shows, we're probably going to get into a lot of the plot stuff. Maybe not everything because there's a lot to cover. It's, it's worth your time to ch check them out. Uh, we'll have Stefan talk a little bit about The Expanse. I'll talk a little bit about Battlestar Galactica and then we'll get into the, the new content here. Uh, Stefan, what is what is The Expanse? Why should people know about this and to get grounded for our discussion here? 
Oh, we are finding ourselves in the near-ish future. I forgot the year exactly, something like 2100, thereabouts. Uh, and uh, humanity has uh, gone into space. Uh, we, uh, we had a colony on Mars. That colony is now pendant, uh, a quick independence war, but nothing, uh, nothing major. There are colonies in the so-called belt, which is the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, uh, where they have built space stations on Pallas and on, uh, and on the other bigger asteroids, basically. Basically, uh, the moons uh, that are orbiting Saturn and Jupiter are also colonized, and you have basically divided uh, the, uh, the solar system in three uh, groups, uh, three factions. You have Earth, uh, which is united under the rule of the United Nations, which is <laughs> nice, I guess. Uh, then you have Mars, which is calling itself the Mars Congressional Republic, uh, and is oozing wipes of a kind of left space utopia-ish thing, you know, like a, a little bit social, a little bit more equality driven, but also with a lot of emphasis on military. So it, it is this blend of Sparta, but with a welfare state, uh, basically, <laughs> uh, that's Mars. Uh, and then you have the belt, which is what if the industrial revolution, but in space, uh, you have a lot of uh, oppressed people and uh, class warfare and, and all the good things. And basically, uh, Mars and Earth are both shitting on the belters and uh, you have shifting alliances and people trying to make a living. And now you throw in our crew, which is basically... Uh, from every cyberpunk uh, genre that you can imagine, they are runners, uh, basically. <laughs> they, they are eking out their existence in the shadowy underworld uh, of this solar system. And that's how we meet them. And they get involved into a gigantic-ass conspiracy between uh, um, a corporation that has shady dealings in new tech. Uh, said new tech is... Uh, um, uh, is revealed uh, to be actually alien goo and said alien goo is doing very bad things that no one really understands, but everybody tinkers with, much like nuclear weapons, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, the nuclear goo uh, then starts to construct itself into a gateway to other worlds, which is when the series expands, you get ah. it, um, it, 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 and uh, widens its scope, basically, so they can also visit other uh, solar systems. This is the plot uh, going from the third novel uh, onwards, basically. Uh, this is very slow, like you get uh, a ton of alien planets and alien races or anything, um, but uh, you will get the consequences of uh, said expansion. And uh, also as a warning, uh, there is a time jump between book six and book seven uh, of about 30 years and the TV series, which has currently adopted book five in season five and will now adopt book six in its final season, will not make this time jump, <laughs> uh, but will rather simply cut off and end. It, it will be uh, funny to see how they do it. Uh, but if you pick up the books because you like the series, you will get definitely more books than series, which is something for Game of Thrones fans. <laughs> so um, let's see how they uh, how they tie that up. But if you are interested in a little bit of a gritty, uh, pessimistic, dystopian vision of space, uh, if you can handle the darkness uh, that pervades everything, uh, but with hopes of light and true heroism and all that kind of stuff, uh, and you like semi-realistic science fiction, uh, then the expanse is for you. Yeah, it definitely tries to put itself out as as gritty, hard sci-fi. Like space travel is hard, 
Uh, it used to be people could travel, you know, not too far, but, you know, okay. And then it was this, like, invention of this thing that allowed them to travel very fast, very far, but it still hurt people's bodies to do so. That's super interesting. Uh, that, that concept was not one that I've seen. In, maybe it's, it's out there, but it's not one that was familiar, familiar to me in a sci-fi setting. So I, I appreciated that aspect, too. But still, nuclear weapons were kind of in and out of that story, which we'll get into here. So thanks for that uh, summary. I hope that maybe the show can return in a couple of years. I don't know if they, they recast or do something to get that final bit of story, but we'll see. It's kind of a hard story to tell with a, a relatively lower budget, but we'll see how the Amazon show does when it wraps up. I think it's a clever decision. I yeah. Have to say. For, if it's anything like the book, it is definitely like rewarding uh, in terms of an ending. It's, it's an interesting conclusion to at least that bit of the story. So Battlestar Galactica. This is kind of similar, although we find out very near the end of the show that instead of it being distant into the future, like the expanses, it's way distant into the past. But I'll just leave it there because it's a, it's kind of a fun reveal later, um, or it's a reveal later at least. In an age of like enlightenment and very advanced technologies, kind of like the expanse, humans are, are across 12 uh, different homeworlds. Things are really great. There's faster than light a travel, fold space and time, and you can travel great distances. There's a galactic democracy that seems to be flourishing. Basically, it seems like everybody's got a job, um, and everyone can watch their very favorite popular sport, Pyramid, which is, if you want to picture this, it's kind of like people playing handball in a pinball machine. Uh, it's always on TV. And that was great, except for that time about 40 years ago in the story uh, when people invented artificial intelligence and these metal robots called Cylons uh, eventually decided they wanted to take over, or at least they, they were rebelling against their human creators. Humans decided to call them toasters and, and they got into a conflict, but there was an armistice after a long war and that had been in place for what, I think like a couple like a couple decades um and then everything seemed fine until the show starts when cylons who no longer look like these ro metal robots they only look like toasters they now resemble human beings uh, are able to infiltrate human defense systems and kind of leave them open for a surprise attack where why we're talking about it on the show uh thousands of nuclear weapons destroy most of the humans 12 colonies and leave about 50,000 people left uh, alive across the galaxy. So then the show itself follows a mix of like civilian, military, Cylon, and possibly angelic characters um, throughout the, you know, as, as humans try to navigate this journey, looking for a new home mysteriously called Earth. Cylons debate about whether or not to kill off their creators and whether or not that makes them human and if they want to be human because the humans hate them. You know, all this whole plot about, you know, what does it mean to be uh, human? What does it mean to be alive? Um, there's military coups. Uh, there's political intrigue. Like Game of Thrones, there's uh, space battles, pretty much everything you can hope for. The showrunner, Ronald D. Moore, of the reimagined series, called the show's approach to storytelling naturalistic sci-fi, which grounded the drama in a setting that would be familiar to us in the mid-2000s, except, you know, minus the space travel and, and AI. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating show, tries to tell a lot of different stories, and it really was fascinating because it came out in a very influential and unique time, at least in American history, but with the world's history. After 9-11, right after kind of the Iraq war started to get, uh, you know, pretty, pretty bad, also dealing with the writer's strike, which was kind of a weird mix of um, influences external and also internal to the business. And the show really tried to hit on some of those themes in terms of its insurgency storyline, a lot of the kind of the conflicts and other things that happened in the show. Stefan, do you think, what do you think how well the show does this in the Battlestar Galactica? And, and do you think The Expanse, since those books came out around 2011, the show came out in 2015, had a similar influence or period to draw on? Because it's kind of a fascinating period of time between those two. Yeah, it absolutely is. 
the thing uh, I want to really emphasize it that I haven't rewatched Battlestar Galactica in a decade now. Mm-hmm. I've done so on purpose because I think it is very much a product of its time, and I feel it would left me sorely disappointed uh, if I had rewatched it. To me, it's it's a sci-fi West Wing. It's kind of how I feel about it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I also do not really watch Swing. Uh, it it would just bum me out so hard. Uh, and Battles like Electric is in the same place, and I think The Wire also, while, while we're at it. But those two are much, uh, much more problematic than that, um, simply for being so much products of their time. And uh, what you just said, you know, the naturalistic sci-fi that Ronald D. Moore speaks about, uh, this was one of the things that drew me to it. You know, when I saw in the board game, when I saw these photos <laughs> of people in suits walking around in spaceships, I knew I had to watch this, you know, where, where you have these political consultant types <laughs> in a science fiction story. That was something I had never seen before. And I think I have never seen since, really, because the expense doesn't really count feel uh, in that territory. Because it does, uh, because it plays its politics in a different way than Battlestar Galactica. But Battlestar Galactica really is, while it is ostensibly set in the past, it is really set in 2004 to right. 2009 uh, and in space. You, ha- you basically take the United States under George W. Bush and put them into space. That is where this series is at and where its politics are at, where its plot lines uh, are at when they are not concerning themselves with robots and angelic figures <laughs> and all of that. But um, the insurgency storyline is so much Iraq 2005, 2006. Uh, you have uh, the thing about military coups and the power of the military and should the military be used as a police force? You know, these are all questions that were so pervasive uh, in the day. You know, that it is all very Patriot Act-y. And uh, this is something I feel the time has simply gone by hmm. because these debates are, for better or worse, they are, they are now settled, more or less. They are not as contentious uh, as they are anymore. You know, the question of should we go into Iraq and uh, try to uh, try to do regime change and nation building, it's just answered now. No, no, <laughs> no, we shouldn't. Yeah. And back at the time, it was highly, uh, highly contentious issue. And the next thing is Battlestar Galactica came out at a time when there were not that many thought out uh, series with an intellectual approach. So it was a revelation in many things that it did. And by now, we simply have so many people uh, who try to do uh, things like Battlestar Galactica did on a much higher budget with a lot more professional crew and with a lot more professional writing staff. Uh, Because this is one of the fascinating things, uh, as an aside on Battlestar Galactica, is how much of it they winked. You know, this series was improvised uh, a lot of the time. And sometimes if you know it, you see it, basically. But if you do not know it, it is surprising how consistent that thing is. Hmm. Uh, if, if you know that they started plot lines at the beginning of the season and didn't know how they would resolve them at the end <laughs> of the season, they, they just started filming and, and went for it and trusted in their ability to figure it out, which is ballsy. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, t- to me, it's it's a lot like Lost. That's kind of how they wrote a little bit. Um, they had some main, main things they wanted to cover. And they're like, let's see how the fans think about this. Yeah. Uh, but I think in Battlestar Galactica, it worked better than in Lost. 
Right. Uh, because Battlestar like Galactica was not su as successful as Lost. And so they had to wrap it up after four seasons. And they didn't even know if they were going to get uh, the full fourth uh, season. So they uh, they ha had this weird alternate ending uh, in yep. uh, in the middle of season four, which is basically the bummer ending imaginable for anything, really. Um, <laughs> and it also has to do with nuclear weapons and the nuclear apocalypse. So I think we'll, we'll get right into that, that, yeah. But, um, but this is basically... Uh, uh, my, my take on Battlestar Galactica is incredibly so, a product of its time. And I do think this is not uh, as true about The Expanse. Um, the Expanse is, um, is a lot more dated in some respects, which makes it weirdly um, more independent uh, of the current mood. Because uh, with The Expanse, I, I made the comparison before, you know, Shadowrun and Cyberpunk and that stuff, and it feels very much like that. And that's been around since the 80s now. While they did update the equipment and uh, some of that, the plot lines and a lot of the feeling and how characters act and react and the archetypes that they use uh, are much more familiar, uh, basically. You have them in more, uh, in more other media, uh, in, more, uh, in different stories, whereas Battlestar Galactica is much too specific. Hmm. to be ever repeated in that way. So when they talked about rebooting it once again, I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, we're good. What could you possibly do with that premise in uh, these days? Uh, you know, hmm. do Pandemic Galactica or uh, what What will it be about? So no, no. The Expanse will be watchable, I guess, and readable in 10 years or in 20 years. Whereas Battlestar Galactica, I'm very hesitant. If you haven't seen it yet, I am very hesitant to uh, recommend it to you, despite the tremendous amount I enjoyed it. Interesting. On the Insurgency storyline, I think it's fascinating that the Expanse book series and Battlestar Galactica, and honestly Game of Thrones as well, the uh, the, the the Insurgency and Marine is fascinating because all of them cover that. The Expanse obviously is not uh, taking place, you know, and being written while the Iraq War uh, was, was happening, but it, it is uh, something that later in the books, kind of also like Battlestar Galactica, the characters that we cared about, that you would associate yourselves as like the protagonists you enjoyed, you know, following to various degrees, they become the people you know doing an insurgency so then you have to kind of wonder well, what extent are you allowed to uh like these characters but also watch the things that they're doing in game of thrones uh in song of ice and fire the insurgency is um probably you don't like it but you you can maybe understand why it's happening and then it's your favorite characters um or characters we're supposed to like doing the suppression of the insurgency i don't know i find fascinating those three different stories kind of cover um that from different angles there Finally, one thing I wanted to, get to ask your perspective on, do you think it's going to be interesting, the fact that uh, the, at least these books will have been completed, the, the Expanse series, by the time the show wraps up? Like, what do you think from the perspective of when you look at uh, how shows adapt, you know, book content, do you think that there's any lessons to be drawn from either our, the world's experience with, with Game of Thrones or how the Expanse is wrapping up, like the choices that they made? Do uh, you think any of those were influenced by season eights and people's reactions to that? Or I, I just, I'm thinking through this and I would love your perspective on some of these kind of elements. How do those compare? It's very difficult to say because the Song of Ice and Fire and the Expanse are such different beasts right. simply in terms of what they are, what their ambition is, and quite frankly, the quality of the writing. And the while I enjoy the expanse, these are not art. They are good science fiction novels, but that's about yeah. it. You know, you read them, they will change your life. Uh, they're perfectly serviceable. They are craftsmanship, but they are nothing more than that. Whereas Song of Ice and Fire is art, you know, like um, at least the Feast for Crows and the Dance of Dragons 
uh, they are really up there. They are high literature, really. And uh, the expense is simply not. Adapting these is a lot easier than adapting uh, A Song of Ice and Fire because A Song of Ice and Fire is so huge. It has so many mm-hmm. ideas. It is so complex. Whereas The Expanse is not. It, it is simply not. And uh, so that makes it a lot easier to adapt. And that makes comparisons almost useless, uh, basically. So the comparison would be to other uh, stuff that, that gets adapted, you know, uh, like, quote unquote, normal stuff. Uh, basically, uh, th- that is for consumption, just novels uh, that are successful and then get adapted. Like, uh, it would be much better to uh, to compare it to, let's say, The Hunger Games or um, or Twilight uh, novels uh, like that. N- not because the Twilight novels are better or on a level with The Expanse, but uh, they are also just fiction that came out that was very successful and that was then made into a movie. A- and The Expanse adaptations are very competent. And I would argue that the Expanse TV series is better than the books. Not by much, uh, but it is a little bit better. It is more concise. Uh, it has a better grasp uh, of its own material, uh, ironically, and uh, what what is really the, uh, the important stuff. Its characters are pretty defined, uh, sharper. And uh, so uh, I would argue that it is a very successful uh, adaptation. And uh, since book six ends with a perfectly uh, satisfying ending, uh, also for the books, you know, after the defense book six, you do not need book seven, eight, and nine. I mean, I'm glad they are there. Uh, I, I enjoy reading them, uh, but you don't need them. The story is basically complete. So I don't think there will be any problems in terms of the season finale. Whereas Game of Thrones had a lot of problems that were cascading. And this cascade of problems was um, uh, was predicted uh, by George R. R. Martin already, I think, in season four, where he warned them that this would mm. happen. And I think they knew it would happen. Uh, that, and I would argue there's, there was no way around it. And I'm also on record as someone who likes the ending of season eight. Uh, so uh, I have no problem there. I do not like the ending of Lost. Uh, you lose me there, but um, fair, that's fair. Uh, but uh, Game of Thrones uh, did the best I think they could do in, in those circumstances, and they had problems that practically no one faces. Wheel of Time, maybe, but I don't know much about Wheel of Time. Uh, but they also have the problem of not having the proper ending for the book. So uh, let, let's see how they do that if they ever get that far. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, on the other hand. Um, the comparison I would grasp for here is either Foundation or uh, the upcoming Lord of the Rings series, hmm. because both are loosely based on material that has been published in book form, uh, but uh, they are at best tangentially uh, related to the books. Uh, I mean, with the Lord of the Rings, like with Battlestar Galactica, I think this is the best comparison here. What they are doing is to draw on some imagery, on some names, and and on some core ideas that were published somewhere else before, but everything else will be new. Uh, And so what they're basically taking is an IP uh, and not much more. Uh, And then they're doing with it whatever they want. And Battlestar Galactica really improved on the original series. Uh, I mean, if I cannot uh, recommend the reimagined series, I can really, really not recommend the 1979 series because it is just also very much a product of its time and it's not a compliment. Uh, And (laughs) 
I, I tried. I really tried because yeah, I was such, uh, such in, uh, so much in love with uh, the reimagined series, and I watched about seven or eight episodes, and then I said, "Okay, I, I can't. I just can't." So they they str uh, struck out uh, and did their own thing, and wrapping up uh, a story is always very difficult. And when it comes to Battlestar Galactica, I think they did find a solution that was workable. I mean, it is not uh, it is not great, but I do not hate it either. Uh, I think uh, it would have been a mistake to basically end with the attack on the resurrection ship and all of that, which they could have done. But uh, the ending is wrapping up satisfactorily, uh, I guess. It is all right. Yeah, it gives a future for the characters that we hope that have a moment of... Uh of respite after this long journey that they went through. It's similar to some of the, I think the way that some of the characters stories in game of Thrones have ended like uh, the Jon Snow storyline of, well, you know, it's not what he probably would have wanted, but it's something that I'm happy to see him there. Similarly with some of the characters in, in the Battlestar Galactica, once they kind of, uh, where they end up wrapping up. Um, but we're not necessarily needing to talk about the ending of that show because it's uh, I do think it's worth leaving as a bit of a surprise to people. And then whatever the ending of the expanse will be but it is worth talking about the nukes because that's kind of why we're here uh and that they are pretty prevalent throughout both of these stories in in the expanse uh this is something that the the authors here say well they have a joint pen name there's two authors so that's why i also think it's not fair to compare them to to george r, r. martin because you know it's two minds uh you know working on uh, two writing two writers working on something in terms of being able to finish the books this quickly uh, but again also true it's not as um ambitious in terms of its, its plot uh but the authors here had talked about uh in a in an interview with The Verge that both of them grew up kind of near the end of the Cold War when the, quote, fear of nuclear annihilation was pretty much a background constant in their formative years. And they talk about playing a card game called Nuclear War and where the point of it was to rack up the fewest millions of deaths. And it was very per per pervasive. This card game is actually, we've talking about your fandom of board games. Uh, we covered this in episode 10 of our podcast. It's just called Nuclear War. It was made by Buffalo Games. And uh, it was one of those very tongue-in-cheek uh, games but it is really, really interesting uh, to be able to play this. And the author said that the books tried to take that anxiety of something that you couldn't control, but always kind of threatened your life. It was something that could be a game changer for humanity in a positive way, which a lot of people talked about nuclear power and nuclear energy and, you know, all the peaceful things you can do with nuclear weapons, like you know, dam and construction building, or you can, you know, what they're actually used for, which is to kill millions and millions of people. You know, they, they said, the author said that the real significance of this story um, is kind of lost in a geopolitical tunnel vision um, in terms of kind of what you're trying to get to with this technology. The show does a good job of this because really nuclear weapons really make a, a very early appearance in the show. You talked about the, all of our, our intro characters kind of coming together. They're all uh, working, I think it's an ice hauler, moving ice from uh, one place back to earth or back to wherever they needed to go to. To, called the Canterbury. This is destroyed by a nuclear weapon, a stealth ship that makes it look like it's Mars attacking. Canterbury burnt like hell. You got incoming. You take a hit. Just stay calm. They just want the cargo. Well, SOS start negotiations for prisoner release, okay? Just... They nuked her. She's gone. And this really sets off this whole conflict where nuclear weapons are used 
uh, by Mars in a kind of a conflict Cold War that turns hot situation where there's orbiting nuclear platforms around Earth. And that's, they say, oh, Mars is like, this is for a deterrence. We're just making sure that you don't come to attack us. But then there are people within Earth who, who have this faith in this defense system that, oh, we can knock down any missile. We can destroy all of this stuff really quickly. We'll use these rail guns. They love rail guns in the Expanse that mostly fire like kinetic. I think it's like usually tungsten rods or some sort of metal, um, something like that. But it's it's some sort of kinetic launching system. And like we can kill all of these orbiting satellites uh, that will destroy, that can fire nuclear weapons. We'll get them. Have this faith that everything's going to be fine. So they just they do this launch of trying to destroy um, all of Mars's nuclear weapons that are circulating around Earth. And they get all of them but one. And that kills about 2 million people in South America. We have confirmed ID on the contact. It is a Martian stealth seam ballistic missile platform. It holds 10 planet busters, each with 20 high yield MIRV warheads. This is the first time that we've been able to locate two of their platforms at once. It's a hell of a break and a golden opportunity. Then we can use the planetary rail guns to simultaneously destroy them all before launch. A preemptive strike? Yes. It would have to be perfect. If it's not, Mars would retaliate immediately. With justification, millions of lives would be at risk. If we do this, we save lives because it will end the war. Sir, the location of MCRN platform number five has been confirmed. What do the simulations say? Complete success, knocking out all five before they can launch, 82%. And if they do manage a launch, what will the casualties be then? We estimate it would be. That's we... very unlikely, and our planetary defenses are in perfect position. But right now, we have the advantage of total surprise. On your command, sir. Fire. We have a launch malfunction on five. They need to shoot, goddammit. Yes, sir. Five is away. They got one off before we hit them. Jesus Christ. Status. Impact in South America, tip of Amazonia. Total population in the blast zone, approximately 2 million. Watchtowers have detected no other launches. SATCOM believes we have eliminated the MCR's first strike capability. So there's like this idea here that nuclear weapons are, you know, clearly a danger, but there's this faith of another system that will be able to protect them, which I, I would argue is kind of how we look at, you know, missile defense in the United States. Uh, what kind of you can put your faith into this system and it's great and all, but it's not going to really hold um, if the easy solution to overwhelming a missile defense system is just to have more nuclear weapons, which is kind of what Mars uh, ultimately does in terms of its weapon systems and things. But I'll just say this out there. The Expanse is so fascinating because while nuclear weapons are, are clearly you know bad in this world, they're are definitely a lot more worse damaging things in the world. There's a high-tech stuff in terms of this like proto-molecule alien weapon. Later in the books, there's antimatter weapons, which get into kind of even a, a crazier situation. But the show also stresses that there's like low-tech solutions, which is in space, why don't you just drop an asteroid down to gravity well at Earth or Mars? If you throw stealth technology into the mix, it gives this insurgent force uh, that the show is really kind of wrapping up its final arc here. They have the ability to do this, and that really puts a bunch of stuff into it. I, I just find that really interesting that nuclear weapons are there, but they're really in the background for a lot of most of the show because there's these other things that kind of take over it. And I always find that as a fascinating thing that we start with the nuclear weapons, then we grow to both a low-tech alternative to nuclear weapons and then a high-tech alternative. So people are really struggling with quite a variety of different things here.
you cover a lot of you know, popular culture. Did you find the nuclear weapons plot stuff in here? You know, anything out of the ordinary? And what do you think about this idea that, you know, nuclear weapons kind of start as the danger, but ultimately are surpassed by both high and low tech solutions, which I find a really interesting way that they tell this story. I think it makes a lot of sense. For me, the nuclear weapons in the expanse are more a world building issue. Hmm. You know, people would ask, where are all the nuclear weapons? So they need to be accounted for. Uh, and so they are putting them into the plot. What I find interesting, by the way, is that both The Expanse and Galactica uh, have this convenient plot device where there is anti-radiation medicine yeah. that people can uh, can take uh, so that they can have their cake it's and eat It's not a thing, too. by the way. Not a thing. Even yeah, in I the know. Future, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, they are uh, so they can explode uh, nuclear weapons in the plot while still have a plot and characters to go on. It is an expedient uh, of the story in both cases that only works in science fiction and that allows them to actively use nuclear weapons, uh, I think. We will talk about this more in Battlestar Galactica, I guess, than in uh, The Expanse. But in The Expanse, it is just hand-waved away uh, to uh, favor the cooler stuff which is the low-tech solutions that you mentioned, and which would be actually uh, the more interesting ones. Uh, if we are talking about uh, warfare in space, you don't need nuclear weapons. You can't just throw stuff at people because the mm -hmm. speed is what makes the impact. Uh, if I hit something with uh, like a tenth of light speed, it doesn't matter if a nuclear <laughs> bomb is attached to it. It will make a very big splash nonetheless. That's, uh, that's very, very realistic. And in the expanse, I also get this feeling that Mars and Earth have nuclear weapons because this is what great powers do. Right, right. And I do not exactly remember if there is a plot of the belts uh, also trying to acquire them. I think it is they, all... Yeah, they, they get them because of uh, the butcher the um, of Anderson Station, Johnson. Uh, he gets them because he just like takes them control over all like, the, I think it's like a thousand... The net, uh, yeah. where they catch all those uh, all those missiles, yeah. Yeah, so he now has them and they're floating somewhere and they can be used later. Yeah, uh, and uh, they are very much framed in uh, in a new in a Cold War uh, scenario kind of Absolutely. way. Like you need them in order to be in the big guy club, but you do not want to actually use them. So they are a purely deterrent weapon uh, universe of the expanse. Basically, they are a political thing, not something that you actually use in combat. It's the big difference to Battlestar Galactica, where it's just <laughs> one more weapon in the arsenal, baby. And uh, in Expanse, uh, is much more a mirror of what is Cold War, but in space. Absolutely. I find the idea that when the Belters get nuclear weapons, they're like, now we're at the negotiation table. And then when the insurgents are like, well, the, the Marco uh, Inaris group of people are essentially like, yeah, well, we don't have nuclear weapons, but we have rocks that we can throw at you that are actually worse than a nuclear weapon and we just have to get them to you and we're going to send so many of them to you and you're never going to know when they're there this is a really like his own way of getting to the negotiating table although at this this point he destroyed the table and now he's uh you know ruling over the rubble of the table the, the one thing i find really interesting too is a lot of early history of, of the nuclear weapon era was people once world war ii was over and we were trying to figure out how do you put back some of the nuclear genie back in the bottle a lot of the recommendations people had was well why don't 
don't we take nuclear science, nuclear technology, nuclear weapons, the production of fissile material that you need to build a bomb, let's take all of that stuff and just put it at the United Nations, that nation states no longer get to have nuclear weapons. And if we give it to the UN and we let the UN kind of maintain a international verification system and all of this stuff, then that would reduce uh, the danger and potentially the peace options, uh, you know, are available for people with nuclear weapons. And I think it's fascinating that, you know, obviously that didn't work in the expanse. Yeah, we have the one world government under the UN, but they still have nuclear weapons and they still use them in combat. So I guess that plan didn't necessarily work out very well in that show. But then once we get to a world in the expanse when there are these other worldly alien forces that eventually can shut off physics or change physics and the idea that, oh, a nuclear powered reactor that would, a fusion reactor that would push the ships around or nuclear weapons that detonate with using nuclear fission, these alien forces can essentially like, oh no, we don't do that anymore. They can just kind of shut this stuff off. So it's a really interesting thing because the idea like the world's best weapon, nuclear weapons, um, the world's best weapon, you know, Mars and Earth kind of goes away. And now it becomes another race to get to the next thing that they have the ability to do so, which is really a pretty good microcosm of uh, the Cold War race of what who can get to the next thing the fastest. The only other thing I'd mention about the books is there's a funny reference in book seven to something where one of the characters is in a spaceship and they're traveling. They say it's a, a jittery stop and start motion. They say that it's similar to the first generation explorer ships that exploded nuclear bombs for propulsion. I was listening to the audiobook at night and I had to like sit up and write this down because uh, it's it's fascinating because this is a, it was a thing. It's called Project Orion. It was something that was promoted in the 50s and 60s to use around 2,000 smaller yield like sub kiloton nuclear devices that would be released behind a ship either on the ground to get it up into orbit or while in space it would detonate the heat blast would propel the vessel forward you know it was d determined to not be very effective but it in theory they did some tests that were it could work but you know there's fallout there's all kinds of stuff is there better ways to do this and then once there was this uh, partial test ban treaty in 1963 which banned nuclear testing and explosions in space and in uh, on earth in the atmosphere they determined they couldn't do this any forward but i just found that fascinating that the authors drew on that kind of little bit of nuclear history there um, in terms of the show and the book, but it's not in the show, but it's in the book. So I find that fascinating. Uh, Battlestar Galactica. It is a show where nuclear weapons really bookmark the story. It starts with probably the largest amount of people and places destroyed by nuclear weapons in any movie, book, TV show, or content I've ever seen or covered on the podcast. I can't think of anything else. Essentially, it's 12 homeworlds destroyed by a combination of nuclear weapons and conventional stuff, but largely, you know, nuclear. And really, the end of the show, too, kind of wraps up by people attacking us, the Cylon homeworld, the colony ship, with nuclear weapons. It's a, it's quite a pervasive thing. I think they someone counted and said about 20 episodes of the show, which is pretty good bulk of the, the show, has some kind of nuclear plot, or at least it's a, an element of the plot. It is, it's pretty pervasive. What, what is your take on how Battlestar Galactica kind of covers nuclear weapons? It seems to be pretty much everywhere, and also in some ways not there at all. Yeah, this has a lot to do with the aforementioned medicine that they have. You know, yeah, uh, the homeworlds get bombed with nuclear weapons, and this is one of the areas, I guess, where the budget thing strikes its ugly head already in the pilot episode because he clearly did not have the money to make this actually work which is how this nuclear holocaust of practically all mankind never really quite lands the way that they wanted it to right. it always feels a little bit unreal like it, it it is an event people talk about but it is nothing that you ever really feel on screen this is the commander 
Moments ago, this ship received word of a Cylon attack against our home worlds is underway. We do not know the size or the disposition or the strength of the enemy forces, but all indications point to a massive assault against colonial defenses. How, why, doesn't really matter now. What does matter is that as of this moment, we are at war. And I think the episodes on Caprica uh, have a lot to do with that because uh, the planet is ostensibly has been bombed to obliteration by nuclear bombs, but it is just empty streets. Uh, and I think they sh should have just called it neutron bombs uh, and be done with it. I think that's how some of the fans have tried to. Yeah. Um, but you see also mushroom clouds and you see. Yeah, it is a budget thing. Yeah, it it is definitely a budget thing because if if you look at the scene, for example, of the evacuation uh, from the pilot episode, uh, where they are then um, uh, drawing lots uh, of who to take in their raptor, uh, you can see the mushroom clouds in the background, and they are so clearly CGI'd in. I mean, <laughs> th this is very two thousand four. They just did not have the money to make this work, and then you have these actors in their gear. Uh, you have one or two people, and they walk around in a forest uh, or over an empty street that has been cleared out for uh, for the shoot. I mean, they are trying their best and. And given their resources, they are really doing good things, but you never feel like a nuclear holocaust, which I guess is the first thing why it feels between spaces, more or less. And they are explaining uh, all this with this medicine uh, that people can take. Uh, so it is not a problem with the side effects, and that allows them to actually deploy nuclear weapons as a weapon, which, by the way, you can also do in the board game. Uh, the Admiral gets two nuclear weapons, and mm -hmm. uh, they are just a, a slightly more effective shot against, um, against Cylon base stars. So, but uh, be, be that as it may, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the bulk of the series uses them in two ways. One, uh, as a very strong missile against capital ships, uh, and on the other hand, as a plot device, uh, mostly in season two, uh, which uh, then culminates with the exp uh, explosion of Cloud Nine. Uh, so what, uh, what are these two about? Uh, when we look at how they use, uh, use them in actual combat, uh, nuclear weapons are just used as very big missiles. You know, they, they do a big explosion, and when when I say big, it's like a cruise missile at best. Right. Uh, and it is explained uh, that ships can take that kind of punishment is explained by very thick armor that gets basically melted. So in the Belsa Galactica universe, armor serves the same function as shields do in most other science fiction. It is the same empty word. It means nothing <laughs> other than hit points are being detracted. Uh, and a nuclear bomb takes a little bit more hit points than most other weapons, but that's about it. That is what nuclear weapons do in space, and that's why they can use them uh, so, uh, so precipitously. Uh, but when it comes to them using it as a plot point, it becomes a little bit more interesting, I think, because uh, the Cylon character, um, uh, I don't know how, how we call her, uh, it is not Six, but it is A6. Uh, she, ha she had a name, basically, but uh, I forgot it. This is 100% where I, I, I always lose the thread, is which six are we like so that the cylons i think they say that there's i forget how many models there are uh, there are seven models seven models thank you uh so every per every so there's like a high mind consciousness of these different models each one has somewhat of a different personality but each model itself may have different personalities amongst them but they vote you know but through a hive mind and it's when they have the scenes where the multiple of them are all together uh, but I'll, I'll just end it there. But I find that really fascinating that there are these different versions and it's fun to see the same characters, including, unfortunately, uh, Dean Stockwell, literally one of my favorite people of all time. 
uh, in TV. Quantum Leap was my favorite show growing up with him and Scott Bakula. And he just passed away, I believe, this past week. Uh, but anyways, yeah. he was one of the sidelines. Surprise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I have to say, uh, Trisha Helfer, uh, who plays yeah, six. She's the only one who ever gets this idea of different characters in the same skin to really work. Uh, I mean, I like Grace Park, uh, who plays uh, eight Boomer, uh, but her characters are basically all the same. (laughs) And even Dean Stockwell uh, doesn't differentiate too much between his ones. There's uh, there's that uh, to be said. But back to nuclear weapons, we have this plot uh, where she begs this favor, basically, from Gaius Bolton. She wants a nuclear weapon, and she asks why, and she uh, she evasive and for some reason this doesn't set off any alarm bells which is uh, (laughs) plots in Battlestar Galactica you just have to go with them Uh, and so she gets this nuclear weapon and uh, she she basically has this for several episodes she has a kind of erotic relationship with a nuclear weapon you know there are shots of her being naked in front of that weapon in her uh, in her sleeping cell and uh, in the end she commits suicide uh, by uh, detonating uh, it and detonating the whole ship, uh, it is on the Cloud Nine, which is the luxury liner. So I think it's get... called. I think it's called Mushroom Cloud Nine. Yeah, after that, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. And this will then uh, lead to the discovery uh, of the um, of the humans by the Cylons because they can read uh, the background radiation in space, basically, and then they find them within this nebula. Uh, and there, uh, the nuclear weapon becomes once again. Uh, it's a custom role of the arbiter of death, doom, and destruction, mm-hmm. uh, basically. Uh, at that moment where Gaius Bolter is giving it over to Six, uh, he is handing her a weapon of incredible potential. Uh, and you can already see it uh, put on the screen, basically, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, th- this is the wipe that you get. Uh, and this is what the plot line does, uh, I think. It is the one plot line where nuclear weapons, or a nuclear weapon in this case, uh, really becomes this dangerous and destructive force that nearly wipes out humanity, uh, which is the closest Battlestar Galactica comes to the classical framing and dialogue and use of nuclear weapons in pop culture. And I think, once again, this is a thing about the time period in which it was made in, because between 2004 and 2009, nuclear weapons weren't a topic. You know, uh, terrorist attacks were, mm-hmm. and terrorist attacks with rogue nuclear weapons were a topic, uh, but not their use in warfare. Uh, so I think this is, once again, um, something uh, w- has to do with this contemporary thing, whereas The Expanse is in a much more generic and therefore more applicable frame of reference. Uh, where it comes to the nuclear nuclear weapons, yeah, absolutely. I th- I find that it's a it's so interesting that one thread when he Gaius Baltar, the 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 brilliant scientist, you know, call it a an Oppenheimer meets Hugh Hefner type combination. He uses the nuclear weapon, if I remember right, as something that he he builds a Cylon detector, which is so interesting that that would be a thing but it's an example of nuclear weapons providing some value that's non-military and then he then passes that on becomes back to being you know military when she learns to love the bomb uh, in a very unique way but the fascinating thing i think too about about the weapons is that the nuclear weapons exist clearly 
in in the in the, co- the colonialists, the the uh, the human characters, at least in the show, they're not everywhere. I think there's only about maybe seven or eight of them in total that the humans ever get to have. I think that they start out with five on the Battlestar ship, and then um, or the Galactica ship, and then I think they get four more later from another ship. So there's not that many human side, except that the Cylons have just an, an apparently unlimited supply. Whatever their supply chain is, it's 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 working well, and they seem to fire nuclear weapons constantly like the danger is always they use their faster than light travel they pop into a situation and they fire nuclear weapons and destroy as much as they possibly can which this idea of of in, in nuclear weapon deterrent you know, world uh, in war fighting is called a bolt out of the blue strike. The idea during the Cold War that we're worried that the Russians uh, or the United States, you know, will fly over with bombers um, over the Arctic out of nowhere and destroy maybe a capital city and try to destroy leadership, sow confusion, and you reduce your enemy's ability to retaliate. Today, that comes up a lot in the terms of cyber attacks that may destroy someone's nuclear weapons, uh, their defense systems, launch weapons where they're not supposed to. That is very much a plot point in um, Battlestar Galactica, the idea of keeping things analog or separate from a network. That same terminology is used a lot in terms of command and control, you know, air gapping a launch system away from larger systems. So you can't hack it externally because it's only exists in the launch, you know, tubes in the, the launch command centers. So I find it really interesting that they kind of compare these these elements. I also find it interesting that they, they discuss like the size of a bomb that destroyed Caprica City, kind of one of the main capital cities. Um, they say it kills about, you know, 7 million people and they say it's a 50 megaton nuclear bomb. I mean, that number is significant in nuclear history because Tsar Bomba, which was the, the name of the largest ever detonated nuclear device that the Soviet Union tested, which could have theoretically gotten to 100 megaton, was the largest in terms of detonated, at least in our timeline. And I'm sure none of this is intentional, but I find it really interesting for me as a nuclear nerd. One of the main characters' name is Boomer. Boomer is the name of what we call our, uh, the United States calls its nuclear launching se- uh, submarines. It's uh, Boomers and attack subs. Probably nothing because she, cause she's a bomber, you know, fighter pilot, jet person. But I find that interesting. And now the B-21, which is the new Northrop Grumman heavy bomber that's supposed to replace the B-2 Spirit and the B-52 Stratus Force. That's also going to be called the um, the Raider, which is the Cylon ship name. No, I'm sure none of this matters, but I find that interesting, the kind of weird connections between um, our world and, and their world in, in the nuclear sense. Battlestar Galactica loves to play this game, um, but I also find it really fascinating that, you know, in our world, there's mutually assured destruction. The idea that, you know, you won't fire your nuclear weapons because you're worried that the other side is able to still get shots off and you would both be in a bad situation. So you don't do it. That doesn't exist with the Cylons and the humans for a long time because we don't know, the humans don't know where the Cylon homeworld is. They didn't even know that they were you know, doing any of this stuff. There was this Cold War system. I love the the opening of the show where there's this like armistice station that they get together. It's like every year to maybe negotiate. You know, we haven't heard from them in a really long time. And there's this guy who's just been living here at this station and checks in every once in a while. And they finally do show up and, and destroy it. This idea that there was this Cold War that actually really wasn't there because mutually assured destruction didn't exist. Or the Cylons could jump into something. And they also can't die because they have this technology called a resurrection chip. So the idea that they could 
you know, you can destroy one of their models, but their brain downloads back to another body and they're, and they're back. So this idea that mutually assured destruction doesn't exist for them until they, the humans and a, and a couple of Cylon rebel, rebels destroy these resurrection ships. So now they're back to, if you die, you die. That is, I think, really interesting and has a lot of comparisons to the Cold War, how mutually assured destruction between the United States and the Soviet Union really didn't exist until the Soviet Union got heavy bombers. And really... Once ICBMs came into the fold, if you think mutually assured destruction is something that is stabilizing, I don't necessarily think it is, but it didn't exist for a while. And like the show, it kind of takes a while before there is that level. But at that point, they're in a shooting war and nothing really is uh, there anymore in terms of stability. But anyways, I find that super interesting. Now we're getting to the last kind of question people have, which is, are nuclear weapons effective in space combat? And you talked about earlier that nuclear weapons are kind of like just a little bit more devastating weapons. That's kind of how the, the Air Force thought about nuclear weapons for a long time. They're like bombs, but bigger. Um, what is necessarily unique about them took years and years to develop what's called the nuclear taboo, the idea that we won't just use these things in combat because they represent something different. Unfortunately, that debate still kind of goes on here and there, but at least there's something you know more substantial than what the show has, which is that they're mostly just larger weapons that could be used well in space uh whether these things are very effective you know i think you described it pretty well now nuclear weapons can do more or less three things they cause heat they cause a, sh a shock wave some sort of pressure over pressure wave and then radiation and in space a shock wave is not really a thing because there's no air to push away fireball and a heat is a thing but it depends on how close you are when the weapon detonates and whether or not the heat is localized or kind of spread across the ship and the radiation is definitely a thing um, there's this whole report about nuclear weapon combat in space that the air force put together and it's true so radiation can travel more intensely in space because there is an atmosphere trying to slow it down but i think the idea that any of these ships are not protected against radiation because the cosmic radiation that they would be affected in space which i think the expanse tries to get into a little bit more is way more anything than yeah uh but it's way more anything than a nuclear bomb can produce gamma particles and neutrons from a nuclear detonation suck but they're not any they're way less significant than like a cosmic ray from the sun uh, those are the things that you really can wipe stuff out so if something is shielded against that which these ships seem to be you're probably fine with a nuclear weapon the way you get into a bad situation is when a nuclear warhead can land like inside of a ship like if it is a penetrating weapon that can get through the hole and then detonate because then at that point you're just you're back to like independence day situation of exploding something from the inside and i think I think that's what you see with ships like um well i guess cloud nine was like a civilian ship but any of these military ones if you can get inside the ship and detonate it yeah then of course all of the things that you like about a nuclear weapon are there so i'll just put get off my soapbox here i think they show does a good job with it with battlestar galactica and that in terms of like how effective nuclear weapons are but if you fire like a thousand of them at one time it's going to be pretty effective the expanse just seems to be in one nuclear weapon can pretty much devastate you but i think the way the expanse takes on this is that a lot of the ships aren't really shielded against a lot of this stuff like they're like as cheap as they can possibly be to do what they need to do in space and like the military ships might be a little bit stronger you did a great episode of your podcast about the ships in Battlestar Galactica. I'm not sure if you covered the expanse on that um, in that episode, but what do you what do you think about that? Like the the, the kinds of things you see in the expanse. Um, is there anything unique in terms of the ships uh, or military combat? I I find uh, it's it's fascinating the very utilitarian perspective that a lot of the ships get. But then once you get into the books and you get hybrid alien uh, Mars ships that get created, then you get into like a really weird place. But 
Yeah, where, what do you think about the ships you see in the Expanse? What do they do? They're making a lot of hay of the different levels of hull uh, that they have. They are explicitly saying that civilian ships have one or two hulls, whereas military ships tend to have three or four, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is important uh, in terms of redundancy. Uh, and I think uh, in shielding as well. I do not think uh, that they ever talk about it as a protection against nuclear weapons uh, or against radiation from space. I'm not sure if that ever comes up or if it is just a hand wave. But if they do have a medicine that protects me against nuclear radiation I, and I, they also have a medicine against G-forces, why then not yeah. against space radiation? So uh, this uh, we have a medicine against it stuff from science fiction uh, is a really helpful plot device and not concern yourself with that stuff. I do remember um, reading Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy uh, in which this actually comes up as a topic and they have this safe room inside the ship that is shielded by water, I think. Yeah, water works really uh, well. Something like that. Whereas the rest of the ship is uh, basically subject uh, to the solar flares, but you get a warning period, so it, it isn't that problematic. Now that I talk about it, I think in the expense they have something similar. Uh, that they're, um, uh, these crash couches are protected against it or something. Uh, I, I think there is some lip service paid to the idea, but it never really comes up at a plot point. Uh, it is essentially uh, an obstacle that they overcame with tech. There's this like radiation shelters on, oh God, this is going to be a test of my memory. Is it you Ganymede are... where they test the protomonocle as a weapon and then they tell people to go in the fallout shelters, but that's actually Eros. where they're testing. Yeah, Eros. Yeah. So that that's there, but I, they don't really say why people would need to go into it at certain points versus like all the time, since you're always constantly being affected by radiation. But anyways, I, I guess it is lip serviced uh, here and there. Other than that, uh, I would say there is nothing uh, all too special about it. Uh, the expense uh, puts a lot of emphasis when it comes to space combat and the idea of uh, spaceships on there. Uh, I put it in scare quotes, realism when it comes to <laughs> propulsion. Uh, this is the big thing about the expanse. You know, you you actually need to accelerate and brake, uh, and uh, you ha- you have to uh, endure the g forces that come with that. Uh, that is the big thing and the claim to realism, basically. Whereas um, when it comes to Battlestar Galactica, uh, they don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if they ever say why there is gravity on their ships, uh, and does it matter? No. Uh, I don't care. Like, they have artificial gravity. Okay, Uh, perfect. Um, They have medicine against nuclear weapons, so why not? Um, And and I have no problems with that. This is not hard sci-fi, even if it uh, tries to uh, to pose as uh, as one. And I'm glad it is not hard sci-fi, because hard sci-fi sucks. (laughs) Well, that's why I think that the show for The Expanse, I would agree with you, is a little better than, than the books, mostly from the fact that the books... If you read the books or listen to the books, you have to hear the word crash, couch, and juice, and um, all kinds of different science that goes into travel just constantly, because it's always on the front of people's minds when they're traveling. And with the show, it's not as, like, it's it's at the beginning, and then they don't have to reference it every time they go uh, on, a, on a thing. So I think from a, an entertainment perspective, I enjoy the show from that view a little bit better but so just to wrap up my perspective on on the nuke stuff is that both of the shows and the stories really have nuclear weapons as as central points they do tend to like with Battlestar it's it's a kind of starts and ends the show Um, we talked we didn't we kind of didn't cover it too much but there's this whole like idea that the humans are on their way to a a former 13th colony that used to exist 
um, that there's rumors of it. They called it Earth. And once they get there, they learn that this whole planet had 100,000 years ago or something like that had been destroyed by nuclear war. And it's still radioactive, which, you know, it's a little interesting to see that it's still radioactive that long um, after. Must be different kinds of weapons and things. But, you know, this happened before. And it will happen again is kind of the, the motto motif of the show. It's depressing from a nuclear perspective of someone who wants to try to get rid of uh, nuclear weapons in, in my kind of interest and career that this is just something that is going to happen. It's going to happen again. Can we break the cycle? And that's certainly how a lot of people feel when they when they're in this field. Um, that are if your perspective is on nuclear non-proliferation being a good thing, the show touches on it here and there, but it is not as clear with its message at the end. That I think maybe the expanse tries to get into that a little bit more with the idea that nuclear weapons are a thing, but you know what? It gets surpassed, and now it becomes more of, like, nuclear weapons are the older generation's versions of the things that we're seeing now, both high-tech and low-tech solutions, but that same debate of, uh, should we try to not mess with the proto-molecule and maybe, you know, just get rid of it? Or should we embrace it and use it to its full potential, which could eventually screw us over in the future? That same debate kind of was about nuclear weapons, as kind of you mentioned earlier. That, to me, is super interesting. So as someone in the nuclear field, I'd recommend to people to check out those two shows uh, and try to get through the, the good and the bad of both uh, to be able to get a clear sense of um, how those stories match to the nuclear de- debates that we still see today. Any more concluding thoughts before we wrap up? I think you covered it all pretty well. I, d- I do not know what I could add to all of that. <laughs> So uh, other than uh, I really enjoyed all this stuff and I did enjoy talking about it with you. So thank you for the opportunity. And I hope uh, our listeners uh, got something out of it, even if they did not watch the series. Uh, so do watch The Expanse. You might try uh, Battlestar Galactica, but don't be disappointed. <laughs> well, really a few things as we wrap up, as you kind of uh, to put, take what you just said and put it into a number. Uh, for our rating system, we always rate the shows or the TV or the books or the movies, what we're talking about here, uh, one out of five, with uh, one being something you'd never recommend to anybody, um, and five being something that's terrific. Uh, I always like to tailor the rating system so that it's, you know, based on the content that we just we just discussed. So I'll say let's rate The Expanse and Battlestar Galactica on a scale of one out of five uh, delicious breakfasts with coffee from the Rossi and toast made from a fracking toaster. Um, if you have just one of these meals, uh, you'll maybe be alert enough to hear the rain and bring in the cat if you've had five of these you'll be full enough for a nice long hard burn during your commute Um, if none of this makes sense to you and sounds like total gibberish that's okay these shows are have their own little fun things in there and they don't make any sense to me even as someone who has uh seen it before and after rewatch i'm like oh yeah that's a thing okay cool how many uh delicious breakfasts of coffee and 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 toast from a fracking toaster uh would you give the expanse and battlestar galactica stefan I'll give four uh, breakfasts to The Expanse. I, I think it is absolutely solid and very enjoyable, but it's not up there with the best of the crop. Sure. And for Battlestar Galactica, my nostalgia says five, but my realism says three, <laughs> so let's go on four as well. I think that's perfectly fair. I put The Expanse at 4.5 now because it, it hit just the right kind of notes for me. I think I'll look back on it. The more, if I revisit things, I may drop it a bit. But for me, it's an, it's just, I enjoy it. And I wish the uh, the show wraps up well and we'll see how all that goes. Battlestar, it's very much in the nostalgia element for me. So I, I do 4.5 because I really do enjoy it. I think I've started to rewatch it 
for the podcast, and I don't know if I'm going to continue. I might just kind of pick a few episodes here and there. I do remember when I rewatched it the second time with my wife, I remember thinking, wow, each of these episodes individually is pretty good except for like one or two. And then when you look back on the whole thing, I'm like, I wish they would have had more time to clean up a few things here and there. There's the Black Market episode I remember being particularly uh, hard to get through. Um, but anyways, this is kind of why I rate the show. Uh, anything, Stefan, that you would have, you would want to recommend to people who have enjoyed our conversation? Of course, The Expanse and Battlestar, if they haven't seen it, they should check it out or to varying degrees of that. Anything else uh, in the genre you would recommend people to check out? Recommending in terms of checking out, I would definitely say Raised by Wolves. Uh, which yeah. might tickle your fancy because this is a, TV, uh, a science fiction series that has one season and I think they're either filmed or are filming second season. It has the thumbprints of Ridley Scott over it. He was involved as a producer and a director of the first episode. So it's kind of high caliber. And it has also these stories about robots and uh, the nature of humanity. And it has a very apocalyptic feeling about it. And it is very interesting. I'm very sure it is not for everyone. So I'm not saying like watch it but <laughs> check it out it might be for you but i cannot say it will be it's on apple tv right um yeah i think so if you're just in the market for science fiction currently running is a uh, foundation i did an episode about that with uh, shanti collins for all paying patrons so shameless plug here <laughs> uh but if you do like uh, your science fiction and epic science fiction at that with with all the colors and high tech uh, and all that kind of stuff then watch foundation but it has nothing to do with either Battlestar or uh, the expense for me i've got things one is an article published by the peace research institute frankfurt uh, in 2016, called The Nuclear Taboo, Battlestar Galactica, and the Real World. So it's a fun little take about how uh, science fiction either reflects or can maybe shape uh, debates around nuclear weapons. It's interesting. It's, it's a good article. informed a little bit of my thoughts here on the on this episode. There's a, a great book. I think I recommended it before on the podcast by by John McPhee, who's a, a excellent writer. Uh, he wrote something called The Curve of Binding Energy. And it's a 1974 book about a nuclear physicist, Theodore Taylor. And this person was a really interesting uh, individual, um, got into the Manhattan Project, uh, was very much involved in some of the advanced fission weapons, uh, was a both a an advocate for nuclear weapons, but as a way to, you know, know hopefully get rid of them it was a weird weird you know conflicting a life this individual had but also they were a major advocate for using nuclear weapons as space propulsion so he was a big advocate for project orion that the expands references uh, and finally i'd recommend the first two-thirds of a book uh, which is neil stevenson's seven eves have you ever seen this one, Stefan? It's a story about, it's 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 our world, it's our timeline, maybe five to ten years from now. All of a sudden, for no reason, the moon explodes. We don't know why, but it explodes, and we're like, oh, that sucks. But then we realize, oh, that's going to cause a bunch of particles to come down and essentially, you know, destroy all humans um, and make the Earth uninhabitable in two years. So people are racing to get to space, and it's all of this very, to varying degrees of, of, of true science, trying to get to the space station, trying to decide who gets to live, how do you maintain humanity for basically 5,000 years was the the timeline they're going to have to get to. So the book is really interesting from that perspective. It it does like the expanse, a, a big time jump, but instead of 30, it does 5,000 year jump. And the 5,000 year jump is interesting, but it, it I think it 
lands flat on its face and it's not able to end the, sh the book really well. But the first two thirds of the book are very, very interesting and deal with a lot of the uh, struggles of what it would be like to live in space. I think you got people have a lot of things to check out. I will also recommend uh, people check out the Boiled Leather Audio Hour, uh, being Patreons, supporters of that. Uh, you get a lot of wonderful content, um, not just things that I've been on before, talking about Chernobyl and Game of Thrones and dragons, why dragons are nukes, but also you get some other wonderful content and, and views from Stefan and the whole crew. So uh, what else can people find you at in terms of social media or your website or any of that? The main thing you already mentioned, which is the Boiled Leather Audio Hour podcast with all its cool programs and stuff. And it's Patreon at patreon.com slash Boiled Leather Audio Hour. So thank you for the black ones again. <laughs> um, if you are by any happy circumstance uh, a German-speaking person, you might want to check out my podcast, Die Bohrleute, which in which I talk hmm. about politics with Marcel Weiss, but I do not think the chances are good of that. But if you think your chance is good enough or you want just to hear me in my natural tongue, then check out that <laughs> podcast. Uh, then you can also read my blogs, but uh, they are all also German, aside from the Nerdstream era, which uh, Tim kindly referenced in the beginning. So I think we've got you covered. You can follow me on Twitter, at uh, Stefan Sasse, and that's about it. And again, if people are fans of, of Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, the thing that drew me to their podcast was it wasn't a you know, recap show. It wasn't a, you know, pr a prediction show, which there is a place for that. I enjoy that content, but what it is, is it's an analysis show. And that kind of analysis is really wonderful. Um, and even though we're still waiting on that, on those next two books, um, the content is, is good and it's there and people will definitely enjoy it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either nukes-wise or maybe you actually do need to inject yourself with some kind of a juice to travel through space and, and we shouldn't be, uh, you know, underselling that. There's a couple ways you can contact the show. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. I have a website, supercriticalpodcast.com, and I check an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Stefan Sassen. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Bye-bye.